I would say to a young person, don't focus so much about the end, but the journey. And then along the journey, whatever you do the best, be the best. And then that will show you where to go next. But figure out what you enjoy and then be the best at it. Welcome to Professional Profiles, a podcast where I interview industry experts to understand their jobs, learn about their journeys to success, and uncover the strategies they've used to find it. Today we have a special guest, Michael Portman, co-founder of Bird's Barbershop. Join us as we explore Michael's journey of turning failure into success, finding his niche, starting a business, and building a captivating brand. Get ready for actionable insights to thrive in the fast-paced professional landscape we have today. Let's dive into Michael Portman's remarkable story of resilience and achievement. Here's the interview. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So what would you describe your job title as? That's a tough one. I I, I usually say that I do barbershop things. I, I guess really ultimately what I am is I'm, I'm a team builder because I, I don't know anything about hair. So I have to have people around me that know about that and other things. So I assemble teams. Could you share the story behind your journey as an entrepreneur? Sure. I came, I kind of came to entrepreneurship just by knowing that I didn't like working for other people. <laughs> so, so eventually I found myself in Austin, Texas with my soon to be business partner. And we were kind of just going through basic services in Austin in in 2005. It was 2005. And I asked him where to get a haircut. I was moving from the West coast where there were lots of different options and ways of doing things. And it was either a, a discount chain or a high end salon were the options in Austin back then. So we, we decided to do it on our own. So that's, that's my road. What were the steps that it took to start putting that in motion? Well, first it took the idea. Then we traveled around and looked at different places, mostly on the West Coast, a couple on the East Coast, and re- researched the competition. Jason, my business partner, posed as a franchisee for Supercuts and learned what he had to learn. As, as an owner of a salon. So got an SBA loan, wrote a business plan, got a loan, put down $30,000 total. So 15 each and borrowed the other, I think it was 90 from the bank because he had to put down 30%. That was 06 on South Lamar and we were able to do it for that little money. Then it's not that cheap anymore. But, you know, everything's relative. So, yeah, it was just really one foot in front of the other. Like, like each part is kind of arduous, but then you do it and you're like, well, okay, what's the next part that we have to finish? How did you make birds stand out from your competition? I think that, you know, you can go to like, oh, we were offering a free beer and we were offering good music and, and vibes. And I think vibes are super important. But ultimately, what sets us apart from our competition is operations, just keeping people happy that want to work there. And and that means running a tight ship and getting people to get haircuts and doing that part of the work for stylists and barbers. I think that, you know, being the best employer 
is is the ticket because we're not really in competition for haircuts so much as we're in cup especially in this post-covid environment we're we're in competition for hair cutters so we have to be the better haircut place and hence we have more people who cut more hair hence we do better <laughs> you know that it's it's really that simple how could you be the best employer possible what does it take well it takes benefits for sure, right now in the mark, the labor market, labor has the upper hand because there are supply and demand. There's more jobs than there are people to fill them. So you have to be the best, but then you have to operate the best and make sure they take home money to live their best. So you have to help them make money. Uh, <laughs> it's the real simple answer. What do you see the future for the labor market? I'm optimistic. I mean, I think that a recession is coming if it hasn't already come. And I think that the United States of America, a lot of people are sitting on a lot of cash because the government gave out a lot of cash post-COVID. And now that's either running out or it's just time to turn the page. And our business is one that survives during recessions because you still get your haircut. So I'm eager to see people going back to work. Could you briefly just describe what a recession is for the audience? What a recession is to me is people needing and wanting to work. And we always see that and we always see an uptick in our business actually, because like I was saying about being the better operator, if you're the better operator in bad times, you really reap the benefits. Whereas in the, being a good operator in good times, you know, it's good times. So the next generation up in the job market, they're projected to see more tech jobs and more biotech and different new industries. How are you going to keep up with that side of things and keep your... From what perspective do you mean? Like, give me an example. Like 10 years down the road, how are you going to have people that are still wanting to cut hair? The thing that's different from, well, the thing about haircutting as a profession is it's a, it's a licensed vocation and it's a path that you don't have to go to college for, but you have to go to a trade school for. It's just a different path that leads to, you know, employment after a thousand some odd hours of, of training. So you can, you know, especially if you're looking to pay bills right out of high school, you know, you get a great crop of, of people that, that come through that way. In 10 years, I think that there'll be even more demand, uh, absolutely more demand for vocational jobs. I think, you know, tech is shrinking or going through a, a brief shrinkage right now. And like AI wrote my press release, you know, like I, I don't know the future of higher ed, white collar jobs. I think that's really dicey. I, I would be concerned being a senior in college right now. And being like, all right, like the path I chose when I graduated college was creative writing. I would not choose that today. So I, I just think that things are limited, but then they also say that, you know, with new technologies comes new, new jobs to service those technologies. So we'll see. So after college, what did your life look like? Did you immediately know that you wanted to build a business? Oh my gosh. I want you to know, and I, I, I want you and all your listeners to know it is okay to be undecided. (laughs) 
And up up until real late, <laughs> I was undecided for a long time. I was undecided going into college. What did post-college look like? It looked like waiting tables and splitting an apartment with a friend and trying to get, like I said, I was a, had a creative writing and English major from college. So I, I thought that was fun and easy for me to do. So I found out there were jobs for that, which was in advertising and marketing. So, you know, spending back in the, I think this was when email, you know, sending email cover letters and, and following up with a phone, all that stuff. And finally getting into that, that thing. And then not too far after wanting to make a go of, of doing real, I got, I started writing screenplays and moved to LA because of it and pursued that and didn't work out, but it was awesome, awesome experience. So a lot of the adults I've talked to have always mentioned keeping your doors open for as long as possible. And that kind of goes with what you're saying. I mean, you're not forced into a role. Even if you're undecided, you have a wide range of choices that you can make. Would you agree with this kind of open door philosophy? Absolutely, because I think that if you don't do that, then you may end up in a career track that's long and, you know, takes it's taken 15 years for my business, for example, to get to a point that I can sleep at night. <laughs> so, so it takes, it takes about 15 years in anything really in a career. Right. And if you, if you find yourself two, three years deep into that career and you didn't realize that you could have been a casting director or you could have been a, I don't know, gym owner, you know, that's what my son wants to be. But, you know, I think entrepreneurship, when I was in high school and college in the nineties and uh, yeah, the nineties, being an entrepreneur was kind of a bad word. It was kind of more of a shyster, you know, someone who was double dealing, uh, a schemer. Right. So like, I don't feel like that's what it is at all. And the show Shark Tank changed everything and made everybody want to do this. But, but it's, it's, it's now, it's now changed, but it wasn't, it wasn't really in favor. And it, what I'm getting at is it wasn't really a path that was taught or told was available to you. I, being an English major, I was told I had to be a lawyer forever, forever. And then I took the LSAT and did horribly and didn't want to study hard enough to get my grades where they needed to be. So I just went right into the job market. Could you see yourself in a different industry other than kind of the, would it be the the hair industry? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, it just, it's just where the doors opened for me. You know, I happened to have had a conversation about it, but like right now I'm brainstorming a skate park bar restaurant, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, I've been through uh, Verb is my other company was it is a beauty product company that was born of some realizations during being a barbershop owner. So I think always like you mentioned the door leaving the door open for different things has always everything that that I've done has either failed like screenwriting, but that opened huge doors for me as far as my confidence went you know if i could get through the, the hollywood meat grinder that i could do anything it was how i felt when jason said we should do this birds barbershop thing 
So yeah, doors open all the time. What role did networking and building relationships play in your entrepreneurial journey? And do you have any tips for aspiring entrepreneurs in this regard? So for networking, I would say don't force that. Like that, that's just don't waste your time going to mixers and stuff. Like it's your network is the people that you genuinely connect with and you're going to do that genuinely or you're not going to do it genuinely. You can't force it. So the people that, you know, that I call, I mean, my dad is, you know, I, that's a long relationship, right? Some of my first, my, two of my landlords are, are big mentors of mine, but that, you know, obviously I couldn't force that. And that just came about. On the other hand, I think it's super important to have a LinkedIn profile and keep your stuff polished. And, you know, anytime I am going to meet with someone, I'm going to check them out. And that's, that's what LinkedIn is, you know, is the checkout place hundred percent all the time, but yeah, you know, there's, there's a, you'll have to look this up later, but there's some sort of law of physics, but there's this business law that you can, or, or people law that you can only maintain. It's something like it's some weird number, but it's in the hundreds of real relationships. Like, like I'm skeptical of speaking of LinkedIn, I'm skeptical of someone with 5,000 friends or whatever that is, <laughs> like, you know, I need to know you and knowing you means I can recommend you or not recommend you. But if, if you don't get to the knowing part, then people that just have a lot of topical acquaintances are also sketch, little sketch, you know, I don't know. I don't know who to trust in that scenario. What type of person would be a good entrepreneur? I think all the like, all the unemployable majors, the art histories, the, the sociologies, all those humanities are, are right for entrepreneurs because you're already looking through a different lens. Um, you know, anybody that sort of questioned assumptions coming up, you know, I think that's probably the most common trait that I see is just like, it sucks that way. Why isn't it this way? Right. Instead of just that's the way. So, uh, people who question things, you know, not always the best rule followers, you know, not often, most of the time, not the straight A student, perfect GPA student that followed every rule. You know, I was a solid, B plus, I mean, I worked really hard to get that. So <laughs> maybe A minus sometimes, but uh, B plus student. How did you handle risks and uncertainties as an entrepreneur? And how do you currently work on those? Oh my God, risk. Risk is the thing. Like that's the thing that I have a fantastic team. And Jason and I have built a team now that, could run Bird's Barbershop if we went to space for a little while. Like, it would be okay. But ultimately, what comes to Jason and I that nobody else can do is to calculate risk. And that, like I was mentioning, and that's not that we don't get everybody's feedback. Everybody's capable of calculating risk. But it's ultimately my money. So... I'm going to lose my house or not based on this decision. So, so it's different, right? You know, we're currently in a labor market that's super tight. We were talking about, and you know, am I, for example, 
perfect example. We found a location in the like serving Mueller and Windsor Park and would be our second east side location because we only have one and uh, we're missing a whole section of town that we've always looked in this neighborhood. It's a little close to one of our shops, but we got over that. It's across the freeway. So we finally found this location. It's perfect that there's going to be a Fresa's there. It's going to, they're going to have a coffee shop. It's going to have 75 parking spaces. It's going to be highly visible. It's on a major thoroughfare. That literally checked like five or six boxes. So do I take the perfect location in the worst time or do I not? And we're going to do it. <laughs> you know, like, like, so that, that's risk. It's just risk is binary. Like risk is yes or no. Like there is no 55% risk or, you know, answer. So it, it it's really the thing that, I think that you have to have an appetite for failing. We've closed two shops along the way. We're at nine now. That was once 10, you know, we, but we learned that we're not for Westlake and we're not for Houston and other things and a lot of other things. So all those things help us be better operators on the next one. And, and each risk has a little bit more data behind it to support the decision. How would you say you handle setbacks and failures? I used to handle them very, I used to handle setbacks very poorly and I would go into a funk and, you know, be ruined for days or whatever. I, I, I don't do that anymore. And now I feel that the opposite response is much better. I just, next, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Kind of not dwelling on it and kind of seeing it as a learning opportunity, maybe? Absolutely. Like I said, we, we closed two stores and, you know, Westlake wasn't for us. That was also the rich people aren't for us. <laughs> and then Houston's not for us. That also means that, you know, brand matters and nobody knowing who you are is no good. And so we've come back and learned that's just the journey of locations, right? We've learned that to be dense in Austin would be the smart business decision. Did you, going into building birds, did you picture a specific niche or did you just build it? We Yeah, no, we didn't see a niche. They say you shouldn't build business for yourself because you're not a good representative of, but that's exactly who we built it for. So we were young and naive and hadn't read any books, but we built it for ourselves and something we thought we would like. And Honestly, that's as far as we thought about it. What have you learned about leadership through building birds and verb? What have I learned about leadership? I've learned and only recently learned that I have to let go of everything. And there has to be a contingency plan or else the business isn't solid. If this business, if, if something about birds dies in my brain, because the plane went down, then I did a big disservice to the business because I want this business to, to outlast me. I mean, it's it's possible, so why not? What future goals and aspirations do you have for your business? I have some days I want my kids to run it. Some days I want to sell it and move to Fiji. Some t- the next day I realize that I can't do that because I wouldn't, 
get enough to do that. <laughs> Some days, I mean, we, we, we get pitched all kinds of things, be it franchising or private equity or partnerships and all kinds of things that are actually quite fun to, to vet and as an exercise. But ultimately, at least for 17 years, we have come to the ultimate decision that we like being the owners. What kind of advice would you give to a young person about seeing their future or building a business or finding something that they're passionate about? I would say to a young person, don't focus so much about the end, you know, don't focus so much about the destination, but the journey. And then along the journey, whatever you do the best, be the best. And then, and then that will show you where to go next, but figure out what you enjoy and then be the best at it. And then you'll figure out that there's other things that you like too. And then you'd be the best at those things too. That's what leads you to the, the, the open doors we were talking about earlier. Great. Well, those are all the questions I have. So thank you so much cool. for your time. Great. Really Thanks. It. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to stay updated for future episodes. My name is Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles. 